Welcome to GodPod. This is a podcast from St. Paul's Theological Centre based in Holy Trinity Brompton here in London. Jane Williams, Mike Lloyd and the occasional guest join me, Graham Tomlin, in discussing God, life, theology, the Bible, in fact, just about everything. Well, hello. It's GodPod 64, apparently, and uh, we are here for the next um, episode of this long conversation that's been going on for a lot, a lot of time now. And uh, today is um, a unique GodPod because it's the smallest GodPod ever, because yeah, there's just two of us. There's me, Graham Tomlin. And there's me, Jane Williams. And there's nobody else. Which is very weird. <laughs> it is very odd, because we normally have somebody else in the room whether Mike Lloyd or um, one of the other regulars who come in here or guests or whatever. But um, for all kinds of interesting reasons, there's just the two of us today. And that means there probably will be no jokes because Graham and I are, as you know, very serious Extremely people. Extremely serious. Yeah. So apologies for those of you expecting jokes. You might switch off now if you're expecting the, the funnies to come. Um, or we could ring one. Mike up and ask him to <laughs> record a few jokes. Right. <laughs> Over the phone by video. Anyway, um, so... Uh, what we're going to do today is to talk a little bit about um, theological development, uh, the, um, the kind of ways in which um, people develop over the years, because I guess within theological study, your ideas don't stay the same. Uh, they tend to develop, and that's probably a good thing, or I think it's a good thing. So um, that's what we we're going to talk about. I was reading um, some months ago a really good book um, called Hannah's Child, by the American theologian Stanley Hauerwas, mm. which is basically a theological autobiography. Um, and it's what set me off thinking that this would be a fun thing to do for a God pod, because in that um, book he looks at uh, both, you know, what he was doing academically, what he read, uh, and mm. it made me want to go away and read everything that he ever read. Or anything. Mm. <laughs> that would take me a very long time. But also about the, the things in his life that shaped his theology as well, his relationship with his parents, his relationship with his wife and his son and so on. Um, and I thought it was a really helpful mm. book about about real theology. Yeah, and, and about the interface between life and theology. Exactly. And how yes. Life actually shapes the way we we think, and and vice versa. Because although yeah. we think of, of, of shapes our lives too. Yes, absolutely. Mm. So, w did you grow up a Christian, Graham? Um, yes, I did. I think I um, I say I think I did. Yes, <laughs> my my parents were Christians. So I was um, brought up in the faith. Although, interestingly enough, my, my dad was a Baptist minister. So I wasn't baptized as a baby. Mm. I was, um, I think I was dedicated, but I wasn't baptized. Right. And I grew up in that um, that kind of Baptist world where I don't know if, if any listeners recognize this, but um, it's, a, it's a slightly odd thing that you grow up in a sense knowing you are, you kind of are a Christian because you're taught to pray and to read your Bible and to relate to God as your father. And, um, and I had a great upbringing. My parents were, were wonderful Christian people who um, did, a, did a well pretty good job, I think, um, as far as they were concerned. I think we'll be the judge of that. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> as I was saying that, I thought it doesn't quite sound right somehow. But anyway, there you go. Um, I think they did a good job, whether, whether I responded in the right way is another question. But, um, but at the same time, you know, as, as a Baptist, when you grow up, of course, you're not baptized yet. And so there's a slight ambiguity of are you a Christian or are you yeah. not? You you do relate to God, you, you know, you, you're part of the church and you're uh, and so on. But there's a there's a sort of little question over you because you're not yet you haven't yet you reached this point of sort of adult faith in which which in which you can be baptized and 
And um, I, I reflected a bit on that later on when I kind of became an Anglican as mm. to how how I thought about that. So I think my answer is yes. I think I did grow up as a as a Christian. Um, I had a period of I had a bit of a sabbatical from God. I think in my teenage years, a few years off when I did pretentious things like reading Nietzsche and. Mm. Um, Telling everybody I was not a believer at all. And I think I, I genuinely did reject Christian faith quite, um, quite vehemently for a number of years in that sort of teenage adolescent rebellion. And was that, do you think, for intellectual reasons or because you needed to differentiate yourself from your parents? Or it's probably a mixture of all of them, really. Yeah. I think um, it's partly, it's partly growing up, isn't it? It's partly yeah. you know growing into an adult and trying to find your own way in life. I think I also knew a number of Christians that. I'd suddenly discovered weren't perfect and mm. and was rather disillusioned by um, some of the Christians I saw around me and thought they ought to be better than they were mm. in my rather arrogant way. Um, and also I was I was you know I was reading, I was, you know, encountering all kinds of ideas out there that I hadn't yep. known as a child. And I think also looking back on it, I think it's one of those things where you you kind of get to a point where, you know, your your intellectual life is slightly outstripping your spiritual life. Mm. And um, you know you're, you're becoming an adult as a as a teenager, but you know your faith is still in the childish phase. Mm. And uh, I think that was a stage in which my sort of, if you like, the life of the mind had outstripped the life of yeah. the spirit. And yeah. I kind of thought Christian faith was this childish thing. And it took time for my faith to sort of catch up, if you like. Yes, that's very interesting. I suspect that does happen with quite a lot of people. Yeah, and um, some people never never recover it. No. Ne- never find faith again. No. And um, and that's why I count myself quite fortunate that my parents, and to some degree against my will, made me go to church all that time. So I used to sit in the um, balcony of our Baptist church in Bristol, reading the Bible to find contradictions and trying to work out who was the, you know, who looked rather odd in the church. And, How and the clergy kind of ministers things. must have loved you there, Graham. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I didn't know what I was doing, but I was sort of sitting there sort of doing that. So, um, so, but what it did do is, of course, it made me keep on reading the Bible yeah. during those key teenage years. And I think what I then did is I did encounter a number of Christians who, who, uh, who actually did did quite impress me. Um, and it's an old story, but you know, f- had some quality of life that I mm. sensed I didn't, and that dimension of their life was something I I lacked. And 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 I, I think gradually, I, I mean, I don't remember any great moment of flashing insight, but over a period of time, you know, at the beginning of it, if you'd asked me, am I Christian? I said, I said, no, I, I don't believe. Yeah, a few months later, you'd ask me the question. I said, mm, I think I probably do now. Mm. Um, now, that doesn't mean I think I wasn't a Christian growing up as a child. Yeah. I think I probably was. But I think the way I would put it is that I'd, I kind of lost my faith for a number of years and then um, then recovered it or was brought back into Christian faith. And so at what point in that process were you actually baptised? Was it was before you lost your faith. No, no, it was after. Right, it was after I kind of came, came back to faith in sort of later teenage years and, and was baptised around that that period. Actually, in an Anglican church, funnily enough, because right. um, by that stage my um, my sister and I and were going to an Anglican church because that seemed the right mm. um, place to go. You know, Anglican girls look better than the Baptist girls. I'm afraid, pretty <laughs> Baptist girls out there. You know, it's the usual reason why most young males God can go to use church. all kinds of reasons, can't <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> So I was baptized in an Anglican church at the age of about, I think it was about 18. Right. And um, and I think that's when, if you like, you know, thinking about theological development, that's really when my 
kind of interest in theology began to grow around that period, mm. sort of rediscovering faith as a as an adult thing, something that actually did have the intellectual space to grow into that wasn't a sort of small childish thing that was going to cramp me. Mm. And I think that was the period I'd, I'd sort of trace back that theological interest or the beginnings of it too. Mm. And do you um, ever envy people who had a sort of um, a moment when they knew they became Christians, who had a very obvious conversion moment? Um, I think I used to. I think I used to, but I'm not sure I do so much anymore. I kind of have a sense that I, God takes us on all kinds of different routes and my route is one, other routes are uh, are different and none of them are better or worse than, mm. than than the other and I suppose I still have a sense that it's where you are now that matters not how you how you got, got there, there. Mm. and um, you know I've known lots of people who've had very dramatic conversions and a very vibrant faith for a number of years and then have, have lost it and they seem to be far worse off than someone whose growth in faith has been rather steady and slightly boring mm. but it's now real so um so I, I love hearing stories of people who've had those dramatic yeah um, conversions, but I don't sense any. I don't think I have any great sort of envy of them as as as, as um, wanting a story like that. I think there was a stage when I think I did want a story like that, and probably sort of <laughs> talked up my own story to make it sound a bit more dramatic than it was. But um. I did have a friend when I was at university who um, uh, used regularly to go around with a Christian band, and part of the, their gig was that they were taking turns to give their testimony. And she asked me if it would be okay if she invented one because hers was so dull. Um, <laughs> and I had to advise against it. <laughs> very good, very good. <laughs> but it probably helps, doesn't it, as a theologian, to have had some experience of what it's like not to believe in God. Yeah, oh, definitely, definitely. Well, I'd, in some ways, I'd, I'm, I'm, I'm not... I mean, in one sense, I'm, I'm sorry for those years because it was kind of moving away from God. But in other ways, I do think it's something that's quite a useful thing and mm. I can remember what it's like to reject this and... and and uh, and actually discovering faith again was actually quite a you know, it was a wonderful thing. Mm. It was a, a great experience of sort of finding faith and suddenly finding the world is just a bigger place, and you can sort of see a new dimension of of reality that I hadn't seen before. And so, um, um, so there is something of you know there was a rediscovery of that that mm. faith, which wasn't a kind of brand new faith. It wasn't a kind of dramatic yeah. St. Paul road to Damascus thing but it actually remembering what it was like not to believe is actually quite a good thing and it's almost something you have to sometimes imagine perhaps yes i think so yeah. um even if you're even if you have always been a, yeah. a, a believer to try occasionally to put yourself in the shoes of those who are not christians and to imagine what the world looks like from that yeah. perspective it's not a bad thing to do as long as you don't stay there too long exactly but um and I do myself think, I mean, um, in conversation with lots of youngsters um, in their late teens, a lot of whom are going through this, that I, I sometimes sense God's almost pleasure at that, mm. um, that that God enjoys the, the, the sort of inter, interaction with them as they really think yeah. and grapple rather than simply yeah. taking it for granted unquestioningly. Because yeah. presumably, as we're both theologians, we think that God quite enjoys... Um, yeah. human beings banging their heads against him. Yeah, exactly. And I think it always struck me how you know, when God becomes incarnate in Christ, he actually welcomes questions. Mm. He welcomes people to to kind of come and really quiz him and, and, and ask him questions mm. and and um, sometimes even to doubt him. He, mm. kind of, he encourages that interaction. And if that's what God in Christ is like, it seems to me that must 
conveys something of what God himself yes. is like if God is as he is in Christ. Um, you know, Christ doesn't come to us sort of six foot above contradiction, not allowing any discussion, not allowing any questions, not allowing any real interaction and intellectual inquiry. He actually encourages it. He, you know, he, he engages with the, the rich young ruler and the... Um, and asks questions back often, well, doesn't he? Exactly. To, to provoke them further. And yes, that's right. So yeah. that process is quite a good one. So it's an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, you, you, there's the I think it was Andre, Andre Gide, didn't he? He had a, a version of the of the the, um, the prodigal son story, where actually it's a good thing that the prodigal son. It's sort of necessary in a yeah. way that the prodigal son left the father and came back again, and and um, in some ways it was necessary, perhaps for well, he was arguing that, that the fall would have taken place so that we could then return. Whether you quite say it's necessary, I'm not sure the fall is necessary in quite no. that way. But you can see that good things come out of that kind of journey. Yeah. But then, uh, even though you um, were baptised at that point, you didn't then decide to be a theologian, did you? You read English? You studied English yeah. at university? I, I read English at university. I had no regrets at all about doing that. I loved it. I thought it was a fascinating thing to do. And, um, and of course, the study of literature, I, I, mean, I think what it teaches you to do is how to read texts. Yeah. And it teaches you about different kinds of literature, different kinds of language, how language works. And I think later on, coming to the study of theology, the study of scripture, the study of the Christian tradition, gives you a sensitivity to the way language operates. Mm. So it helps you to make distinctions between um, different kinds of texts. So it seems to me it, it helps you escape from a sort of rather um, uh, in a, a bluntly literal reading um, because you realize that language works in all kinds of different ways, and there's different kinds of metaphor and image, there's different kinds of genres of literature, there's different ways of reading it. Mm. Uh, you know, that, that what you bring to the, to the reading is a significant factor in what you get out of it. Um, so I, 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 that, was a, that was a great help. And I guess you know, the study of English helps you begin to engage with sort of ideas over time and culture. And a lot of figures in English literature, of course, have been quite significant theologically as well. You think of sort of John Milton, you think of you know, Samuel Taylor Coleridge. Um, they're all people who had quite significant theological ideas in their, in their time as well. Which so, tend to be underappreciated now by modern commentators, don't they, who don't yeah. understand that theological world. Yeah, that's right, yes, yes, because that was part of their world. Yeah. You couldn't avoid Christian faith in, in, um, in those worlds. So, um, so that's right. I think you know, the study of English was a very, was a very um, sort of formative thing for me and, and, and you know, again, opening up this whole kind of world of of the mind and and, um, and seeing what place God had in that yeah. and how, uh, you know, ideas were, and I think it began to kind of nurture my interest in theology as well because it related to Christian, to, to, to the study of literature mm. at many different points. So as a 20-year-old studying um, English at Oxford, yep. um, what, had, what did you imagine you were going to do with the rest of your life at that point? <laughs> well... I think I thought I was going to be, um, well, journalism was one sort of thing I thought of quite seriously. I'm so glad you didn't go that way, Graham. <laughs> I know you don't like journalists. <laughs> um, so that's right, just a relief I didn't go down that way. But actually, I quite enjoyed, I quite enjoyed writing. I still do enjoy writing. I quite enjoyed um, sort of investigating kind of ideas. And so I don't think I quite would have been as hard-nosed as, as, as you probably need to be as a journalist. Mm. I think as a journalist, you need to be quite quite sort of tough and, you know, keep on pushing away till you get the story. And I don't, don't think I'm quite like that. So I'm not sure I would have made a very good journalist, really. Um, um, I thought about going into, uh, you know, some, some sort of people thing, you know, human resources, sort of PR, that kind of thing. Um, that didn't quite open up either. 
And so I suppose you know, I was quite involved in the whole um, Christian ministry at university and other things. And so that obviously the question of ordination was mm. on the horizon. Um, and, uh, and I suppose it was around that time I, I began to read so, so some very simple theology books. And, and uh, you know, I think if there's, if there's one book that I, I, I remember from that time that really sparked my interest in theology. It was, it was a little book. It was actually a little commentary by John Stott mm. on Galatians. And I don't quite know what, what it was about that book, but I can remember reading it. And um, again, suddenly this whole new world opens up beyond just the sort of, you know, straight read the, read the Bible and close it and get on with your life. Yeah. You suddenly began to kind of see into this 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 book and the sort of different dimensions of it. And, you know, um, John Stott recently died, was a you know, great statesman of the church in the mm. 20th century. But but um, but that book suddenly opened my my sort of horizons to you know depths of meaning that were there in the scriptures and um, so you know you, it's funny how you could just go back to remember books like yeah. that. But what about you, Jane? I mean, at the beginning of your sort of interest in theology, can you remember particular books or conversations or people that set you on this path as well? Um, well, I mean, I grew up. Um, in South India, my parents were missionaries in South India, and and so um, missionary conversations happened around me from the earliest time I can remember. Mm. My parents mm. always had um, students. We were in a community that had a lot of students, medical students and university students, and they used to invite them in um, very regularly. Mm. And so the conversations were always about whether it was worth believing in God or not. Yeah. And I, that was, mm. that, I just sort of took that for granted. But also that Christianity was part of a very big world. A lot of the Christians I knew in India um, had been Christians for generations and had backgrounds in um, in a church, for example, that they believe was founded by St. Thomas. Yeah, of course. Um, so the Mark Thoma Church. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So very, very ancient Christian traditions, but very different um, from the ones that I... Um, that I experienced, for example, when we came home to England. So again, that sense mm. that Christianity, that it's possible to be a, a Christian in a lot of different ways, mm. I think, again, mm. was something that I simply grew up with yeah. um, and found intriguing. Um, and I think when I was going through my um, intellectual doubting phase, it was about uh, whether something that is so um, multifaceted... Mm. Mm. can actually be true. Yeah. Um, yeah, almost too big to be true. Yes, it's too big to be true yeah. and too, um, uh, people are so passionate about their version of it. Yeah, yeah. Um, yes, it's an interesting idea of something being too big to be true. Yes. Because it's almost like we can't get our minds around it and therefore we can't grasp it, but actually you begin to realise it is that big. Yes, exactly. It's that big that it can be seen in all kinds of different ways and so you'll see different facets of it. So but actually, the, it's all part of the same exactly. thing. So the simplistic thing is to say, well, everybody's version is their own and you just leave them to it and you don't mm. attempt to mm. ask the truth question. You yep. just say, if it's true for you, it's fine. Yep. Um, but actually, the much more interesting um, result is the one that you've just been describing when you realise that it might be something absolutely massive that we're yeah, looking at. Exactly, that's right, yeah. <laughs> and I think, yeah, I think for, for me, to, part of that discovery was was actually discovering the early fathers of the church, which I think I only did when I studied theology a bit later mm. on, and you suddenly start reading these these people that actually we all hold in, in you know, we all hold in a certain degree of reverence. Yeah. Um, you know, when you think of 
sort of the, the earliest fathers, Ignatius and Irenaeus and you know, Clement of Alexandria, and then you go on to sort of Athanasius and, mm. and um, Augustine and, the, and these people who pretty well every Christian, Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox still see as theirs. They're all ours. There is this, this, this great tradition of Christian faith mm. that you discover that um, actually is pretty common to all of us. Mm. That you just get a sense of the size of this, this thing. And yes, you know, since then, all kinds of different branches have developed. But you know, we, we go back to something quite substantial, you know, mm. not just in the scriptures, but in that patristic interpretation of the scriptures and that kind of wrestling with the scriptures that the early fathers did uh, and mothers. And um, that sense of, um, of something, you know, quite, you know, that, that you, you stand in the line of something much, much bigger than yourself, mm. uh, which is a quite a humbling thought, but also a kind of uplifting thought because, you know, we are the next generation called to pass that on. So actually that, that discovery of, you know, that actually my faith was not just, you know, going back to the Bible and reading yeah. it on its own, but it was in a way, in a sense, mediated through all these Christians who thought about it, wrestled with it, tried to articulate it um, over the years. And that actually, you know, I wasn't as independent a thinker as I thought I was. <laughs> Most of the ideas I had in my head were actually there because people like Augustine had thought them first. Yeah. Um, just kind of puts you in your place, yeah. but also gives you a sense of intellectual space. You know, you, you can work within this great tradition of Christian faith that is not limitless. It's not boundaryless. It has a a sort of there is an orthodoxy we're talking mm. about, but it's a generous orthodoxy. It's a it's a it's a it's a wide field to play in. We're in a wide room, which I think is the it's a quote from the Psalms, isn't it? Psalm thirty one. Mm. Um, mm. But it's also the title that Jürgen Moltmann took for his autobiography. Yeah, isn't yeah, it? yeah, yeah. That's right. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And that sense of, of Christianity opening up doors into a very big place yeah. Yeah. Um, it's so different from what a lot of people imagine Christianity does with it which yeah. they think it's about shutting you into yeah. a small space closes you down yeah. but it doesn't yeah. but you said Graham that um, you know we all hold these great uh, uh, church theologians early church theologians uh, in reverence but of course a lot of us don't because a lot of us never heard of them yep and mm -hmm. we do exactly what you say we didn't, we shouldn't do, which is go straight from the Bible mm. to our situation, mm. as though there hadn't been 2,000 years' worth of mm. people in between who might actually help us think things through. Yeah. Mm. Is this part of the reason why you now, I mean, you, you obviously you're a theologian across a great range of uh, theological disciplines, but you're very well known as a church historian, aren't you? Mm. Mm. Is it that sense yep. that drew you into church history? No, I think it is really. I think one of the things um, I did... I guess it's a, a quite important moment for me was I, when I did my theology degree and um, got ordained after that. And, and I, I, I loved that theological study. Mm. It sort of uh, deepened and broadened my understanding in all kinds of ways. And um, I, in my first year as a curate, I went to, um, I went to spend a, about a month in Jerusalem, or at least in, in the Holy Land, generally sometime in Jerusalem, but in Galilee and elsewhere as well, doing a bit of a study course there and I think what that did is it I mean I'd studied the fathers on the page as it were um but what surprised me about that of going to to the Holy Land was not just you know visiting the land of the Bible the land of Jesus and the Old Testament and so on which obviously was significant but also um seeing the significance of Christian history upon that upon the land the influence of different phases of Christian history the kind of um you know, the whole kind of um, you know the the monks living near Jerusalem, mm. just over the hill in the desert, and sort of coming into Jerusalem for the 
Easter services and then they get influence of Constantine building these churches all over the Holy Land, the interaction with the kind of church authorities around that period and the Crusaders and the Middle Ages and, and all of that. And you, you couldn't help but be aware of this sort of wealth of, of, of um, the kind of church through time but also the church across the world there mm. as well. And you, know, you go to a place like the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, the site of the probable site of the crucifixion and resurrection and you get this sense that I mean, the Anglicans aren't even there. We're just a little yeah. blip on the side. And it's, it's these great sort of churches of the, the, you know, the Eastern Orthodox and the Syrian Orthodox and the, um, you know, the guys at the back still speaking Aramaic, this mm. language of Jesus in this little chapel but built off the back. And you just get this amazing sense of this, this depth of, of history. And I think that suddenly opened my eyes to this, just the fascination of, of the, not just church's history, I suppose, because I'm not—I don't wouldn't see myself as a historian, but more as a as a historical theologian. Mm. The way in which ideas have developed and shaped history and been shaped by history. And so that's always fascinated me. That this that this sense of theology as a historical discipline. Theology is something that's been developed and thought about and passed on. This sense of the deposit of faith that is you know, kind of received and interpreted and passed on in the church, that sense of tradition, I guess, mm-hmm. that has always fascinated me. Which is always about real historical people actually encountering God yeah, in their absolutely. real That's historical right. situations. It's not yeah. just books, yeah. is it? it yeah, is. and that fascinating <laughs> yeah. thought that actually the, the, the same, the, you know, the, the God that Irenaeus and Augustine yeah. and Athanasius encountered was actually the same God that I do, mm. that the same Holy Spirit indwelt them as indwelts me. Mm. And... um that I am somehow related to them spiritually, if you like, which, which is again is a very exalting but also quite a humbling thought at the same mm. same time. So that was quite a key experience for me, opening me up to that sense of history in Christian faith, and and that sense of you know it gives you a sense of confidence that you're you, you're you're in something which has been tried and tested over mm. two thousand years. It's not some bright new idea that someone had that came out of a you know focus group a couple of weeks ago. This is something that's got depth and. Okay, at the moment it may be sort of pushed to the side of culture in the West, but actually we're talking about a pretty small phase of Christian uh, Christian history over the two thousand years and beyond that in Old Testament history. This has been around. Mm. But, um, and that sense that although um, the questions that are put to faith now may be formulated in slightly different ways, there are questions that actually Augustine and yeah. people encountered yeah. when you read Augustine's. Yeah. Um, August on the literal interpretation of Genesis, for example. Yeah, yeah. I just like to give it to yeah, Richard Dawkins. Exactly. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to know, Jane. I mean, if you as you look back on your theological development, I mean, have there been particular books that have been really sort of seminal for you? Ones that have maybe, um, you know, opened up new horizons or sort of taken you in new directions or. I mean, maybe experiences as well. You know, what have been the key things for you that have shaped your theological hmm. development, as it That's were? That's a very interesting question. I mean, I think that a lot of the books that really made me want to be a theologian um, were actually novels. Hmm. Um, I think The Brothers Karamazov was one of those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I read it, I thought, I actually just really need to think about this more. I really want to understand... Um, you know, I, I, the, the Grand Inquisitor's speech just mm. seems to mm. me one of those brilliant bits of um, theological pastiche almost that every um, serious, not every serious thing, but lots of serious yeah. thinkers about their faith actually need to read that speech and think, 
um, what is going on here and how do yeah. I feel about it? Um, and um, and I, I think, you know, like you, I, growing up in a Christian family, I wanted to, to know if it was my faith or just um, a faith that I'd inherited from my mm. parents, which is why I decided I wanted to study theology at university. I wanted to, to do it in an academically rigorous mm. kind of way um, without the presuppositions of faith, although obviously a lot mm. of the people who taught me were people of faith but that didn't in, wasn't obvious in the in the lecturing but i remember also reading um there was a book called the crucified is no stranger by mm. sebastian moore mm. um which is a book about about the crucifixion obviously and about how one might understand it and what it might mean and again i think i'd always um you know read the theories of the atonement and, and as sort of transactions almost um mm and found them intellectually interesting and so on. But this book was actually about why it might change me mm. <laughs> mm. Mm. Um, that that Jesus was crucified. Um, so again, I found that a profoundly um, exciting book. Yeah, uh, it's not one that's very commonly read, is no, it? No, it's a, it, and I, and I, I'm almost afraid to reread it in case... It was a very it was very hard work. It was a yeah. really tough-going book, so yeah. it was something, again, that I remember being proud of myself mm. at the age of 17 mm. or 18, actually getting through it. Um, and then I, I was very, very fortunate to be taught by John Robinson, um, who, was a, who was in Cambridge when I was there, um, and a, a man mm. with a very interestingly mixed theological reputation... Yeah. Um, but somebody who was never bored by theology. Mm. I read his book about the body, which was a study of the way in which the, the, the phrase the body of Christ is used, particularly mm. in, in Paul's letters, and found that, again, you know, it, it's where theology breaks through into how you live, I realised looking mm. back. Those are the mm. books that really mm. made me want to be a theologian. And, yeah. um, and the sort of excitement of both the intellectual discovery, but also that, that that has an impact on what you're going to do tomorrow. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. I guess I ought to answer my, my own question tonight. Yeah, so what about you, Graham? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, think, I think for me, um, I'm discovering Martin Luther was a big yeah. thing. I mean, as you know, I teach quite a bit on Martin Luther and talk about him all the time, but um, um, you know, discovering him during my theological study going on to do doctoral work in, in, in Luther. And um, he is someone I just find endlessly fascinating because of, not only because he writes in such a colourful and interesting way, he's never dull to read mm -hmm. like a lot of theologians are, let's be honest. Um, but something like, you know, The Freedom of a Christian, this sort of treatise of 1520, is one of the great classics, it seems to me, of Christian life as, as, as a life of liberty, but also a life of service to one another and it's that same connection I think you're talking about between mm. between you know Christian life as it's lived and how it begins to impact life um I think um Pascal was another I mean he's the other figure I did my doctoral research on the Pensee um is again one of those those books that um that I just again can keep on rereading and some of it's a bit quite hard to to grasp because of the fragmentary nature of it but it's what he he seems to focus in on the, the sort of primacy of desire that mm. that actually at the end of the day we that actually it's it's our it's our wills it's our it's our loves that matter and this is of course it's Augustine's point as well mm, and he absolutely. kind of got it from Augustine but um, that what needs to happen is not just a new bit of information but our our, our our 
we need to learn to desire God, to love God, and that's only something that God himself can, can do. And that was a quite a significant thing for me. I think more recently, I think if there's one book, you know, say over the last 10 years or so, that probably has changed the way I think more than any other, it's, it's a book by um, Ellen Sherry, um, theologian from Princeton, I think, called By the Renewing of Your Minds. And I read it at a stage when I was, I think if I was honest, getting slightly bored with theology and mm. Christian faith. Um, not that I didn't believe it. I was just, you know, had, was getting slightly boring. Mm. <laughs> and, um, and I read it. And the, the approach she takes is that um, the point of Christian theology is not to get your ideas straight about God, as if that's a virtue in itself. And we can also sometimes think that, you know, that it's about, you know, avoiding heresy and mm. getting your ideas right and then you're okay. But she um, she talks about Christian theology as being, she uses this word, aratogenic, which is a rather odd word, but it's related to the Greek word arete, which is virtue. In other words, that good theology leads to the living of an excellent human life. And that's what theology is for. That's why the fathers were so sort of um, what to us looks like rather uptight about, you know, using the right preposition mm. in when you're describing the relationship between the father and the son or the spirit or, or um, you know, getting your thinking exactly right on on God is not because getting your thinking right is right in itself, but um, in a sense that, that theology is, if you like, a tutorial in holiness. It's mm. actually, a, it's learning to know the God, to know, this, know who this God is and to know him clearly and to know him well not just with your mind, but with your heart. And therefore, theology is something, good theology breeds virtue. It breeds good human life, not just Christian life as a sort of odd thing on the side, but but good, excellent human living. Mm. And that whole perspective of theology is something which, um, which just, just cultivates virtue. And Christian faith is something that cultivates, or Christian life is something that cultivates a you know good, ex- excellent human living. Suddenly, changed theology from being a slightly sort of arid um, intellectual pursuit into something that actually had enormous significance for the kind of person I was becoming, the kind of people we were becoming in churches, the kind of people we as a human race can become. And it suddenly gives a meaning to theological inquiry that. Um, it wouldn't have otherwise. So I think that's that's one book that has shaped the way I think about theology probably more and than any other in recent times. And you can see with that kind of emphasis why you've ended up teaching in a theological college, teaching um, in mm. a place where mm. um, you're forming not only people who can write excellent dissertations, but actually people who mm. Mm. Um, want to help shape other Christian lives. Yeah, yeah. And I think probably, I mean... One thing that's coming out of this conversation is that sense. I think for both of us, it's the it's the kind of interface between theology yeah. and and Christian living that that fascinates us. And and, and um, again, I think it's probably no accident that we're both teaching in a college which tries to do that very thing that tries to teach theology at the same time as people being involved in life and ministry and everything else. Because um, that's the, that interface is the bit that's so so interesting. And of course, um, I think we have to be honest to say that people listening to this will be wanting to ask this question. Um, if that is the purpose of theology, how come so many Christians are so horrible? <laughs> um, and looking back yeah. at the fathers, they weren't all the kind of people that you would yep. want to spend your life with. Right. That's probably true. <laughs> um, so how, 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 what do we do about that um, break between what we yeah. see to be the mm. goal of theology and the actual yeah. um, messy, imperfect human yeah. lives that interact? Well, I suppose it's... I often think, you know, 
when we treat theology an end in, as an end in itself, it becomes a problem mm. because it becomes something over which we argue and over which we dispute and fall out and, you know, and, and in Christian history have killed each other over. Um, whereas it seems to me that, you know, th theology is, if you like, a second order discipline. Uh, uh, the, the primary thing is the, is the knowledge and love of God. That's what it's about. It's about an encounter with, with God in Christ through the Spirit. And theology, is, if you like, is what we do as a result of that to mm. try to make sense of it and describe it. Um, so if, you know, if, if, if theology becomes an end in itself, it becomes a, a source of tension, a source of difficulty, a source of, of argumentation. Um, but when actually the center of the whole exercise comes this, becomes this encounter, this, this encounter with God that leads to a knowledge of God and a, an ever clearer knowledge of this God who is passionate love and grace and mercy and the possibility that, that, that I might become someone also full of passionate love and grace and mercy the closer I get to this God. Uh, then theology becomes something that actually can bring us together rather than divide us. Mm. It's, so, you know, theology can become a replacement for God, seems yes. to me, in Christian faith. Yes. And when it does that, it always becomes an idol, like anything does when it replaces God. Not um, just theology, but church practice, church. Yeah, exactly. Going, yeah, 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 that's yeah. right. Yes, and sometimes you can see that happening even in the Fathers or in yeah. in the Reformation or in other periods of Christian history, and, and you know we all do it too. Um, so, uh, so I, yeah, that's, I think that's mm. my th um, thought on it. That. Um, you know, I love Christian theology. I love reading it. I love thinking about all these things. But I always have to resist the temptation to make theology into God. Mm. And is that partly, do you think, um, why you're a theologian in the charismatic tradition? That the, the sort of the the, the mm. doctrine of the Holy Spirit, the one who constantly fires us. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, obviously, I've, you don't have to be a charismatic to exactly. believe that. <laughs> yeah, no, precisely. That's right. I mean, I've always been. I've always been quite intrigued and drawn to, um, you know, charismatic churches or, or um, and so on because of this this sense that that they do have, uh, and I think that's something I've discovered later in life. It's not always been part of my um, my background as a, as a Christian. That what sort of impressed and, and me about many charismatics that I met was this sense that the the heart of their faith was not actually a, a doctrinal idea or a statement. It was actually a a lived encounter with God through the mm. Holy Spirit. Uh, and in that context, theology becomes really quite fun and creative mm. because you're not arguing over it uh, because you know that you've got something much more strong in common, which is this this um, this experience, this encounter with, with God in Christ through the Spirit, uh, of which theology is trying to describe it. Mm. And um, and the many charismatics I met seem to be just maybe a little bit more kind of... Um, uh, open to learn, open to sort of mm. think and to explore rather than getting tied down with very tight doctrinal statements over which they would argue with with one another. So it seems to me it's a, it's a, yeah, it's, the charismatic tradition has got its problems like any, any other one does, but I think the one insight it has at its heart is this, this sense of the, 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 the heart of Christian faith is actually an encounter with God. Mm. Um, and, once, and that's actually quite a, quite a right insight, it mm, seems to me. Absolutely. It places... God and our relationship with God at the centre of things, rather than theology the or our doctrine ideas about or other God. Thing. Yeah, exactly, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I do wonder sometimes. It would be very interesting to look back on this period when we're 
old and greyer than we are already. <laughs> um, and because uh, I have this sense that this might be a period in which the charismatic tradition um, in the Church of England, at least, is coming of age when because um, it used to be accused of being theology light, didn't mm. it? Mm. Being only interested mm. in the immediacy of the encounter. Yeah. Um, uh, and actually now uh, St. Melitus and other such um, uh, organisations and theologians like you and, and many others are um, uniting a real critical historical academic study mm. of theology mm. with this mm. um, sense yeah. of uh, encountering yeah. the living And the two are not mutually exclusive. Well, of course, the fathers would never have thought they could be. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. All the fathers were, were, were charismatics and yes. theologians and everything else, yes. everything else as well. And, and they were Catholics and they were yeah. um, evangelicals and they were, they were the whole thing, it seems to me. Yes, exactly, exactly, that's right. <laughs> so, um, and I think it, it, is, it is right. I mean, I, I, as you know, I recently wrote this little book called The, the Prodigal Spirit, trying to, to do pneumatology in a way that's sensitive to the, the kind of experience of the Spirit in church, but also linking it to the great tradition of thinking about the Holy Spirit that you find in, in St. Basil and mm. in Augustine and... and um, and in sort of later theological history as well, connecting it to that because it is the same spirit that we're talking about, mm. and the spirit is the one who brings unity, not division. And um, and I think that's the other thing I would say about the charismatic tradition. Sometimes charismatic Christianity has developed another strand alongside the Catholic or the evangelical or whatever, which slightly seems to me to miss the point actually, mm. because actually the the point of the Holy Spirit is the spirit is the one who brings unity. He breathes his life into all forms of real faith, and so therefore. Rather than create a separate charismatic strand of Christianity, it seems to be quite right that this is a the breathing of new life into all different forms mm. of, of of Christian faith right the way across the the globe, and that's what we that's what we look to see and breathe breathes life not just into Christian life but Christian theology too, and it's that kind of theology in the spirit that I think is so interesting and fascinating and good to explore. Well, we said at the beginning of this thing, Jane, that you and I were going to have a brief conversation because <laughs> <laughs> we, we thought we wouldn't have much to talk about. We are theologians. <laughs> Nothing can stop us talking. <laughs> so we've gone on a bit longer than we thought we were going to. But So anyway, um, uh, apologies to those of you who are hoping for a little quick 15-minute chat. We've gone on a bit longer than that, but it's been fascinating to talk. Put your finger on the fast-forward button. <laughs> exactly, that's right. So uh, that would go to GodPod64. Uh, we will be back with GodPod65 before too long. So until then, goodbye from me. And from me. That was GodPod, a podcast from the St. Paul's Theological Centre. If you want to send us a question, just email it to godpod at htb.org.uk. We can't promise to answer all the questions you send in, but we'll certainly try. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.